And welcome to episode three of the Bonsai Pop Bonsai. I messed this up. I'm too hyped up on caffeine, I think. Yeah, it's good. Pop. Listen, <laughs> if anyone's messing up Pop Bonsai, you know it's me, buddy. <laughs> so this is episode three of the Pop Bonsai podcast, where my buddy Travis and I take pop culture and we whittle it. We sculpt it into something unique, and we present it to you in a, a in a nice uh, wrapped in a nice little bow for you to unravel. Oh, um, that's that's so delicate and precious. Like we're giving the <laughs> gift of pop culture. Hey, that's all I got to give right now. The best that's part really about pop culture is that everyone can be an expert in it. So we are taking that loophole. And calling ourselves no, we're not calling ourselves <laughs> experts. We are uh, we are consumers of pop culture, and now we are purveyors of pop culture in this That's podcast. Right. Yeah, anyone right. we're we're all creations of something. Whether you believe in religion or science, we're all just creations. But if you're lucky in this world, you can also be a creator, and that's us, Jay. Maybe. That's that's very true. Truer words have, <laughs> have never been spoken. And, and what do we do with this creation? What do we choose to do with this creation? Do we hoard it? Mm-mm. Do do we keep it to us? No, we give it to you, the people. our our, our the listener. People. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So this time Ooh, around, you know, I was thinking a good name. I think what, you know what we're going to change our name. We're doing a name change right oh. now. This is happening. Oh, I'm going to yeah. buy the website. We're going to call ourselves the proletariat of pop. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Hold on. So GoDaddy.com, Proletariat of Pop. Done. Ours. That, that's kind of got like a Springsteen vibe. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. I, he I is. Like Springsteen it. might have the title of being the Proletariat of Pop. I think so. But he's about to be moved over. Yeah, well, did you touch some kids? Like the King of Pop? No, with us. Oh, okay. Okay, good. We're not that's touching any saying. kids here. <laughs> no. <laughs> so this this time around our... Um, our theme is is Western scoundrels. Wow, 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 wow. So we chose a few things here for you. Um, first thing is uh, we're talking about the the nineteen sixty six uh, movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, Sergio Leone's masterpiece, if you mm-hmm. will. Um, we're going to oh, and speaking of masterpieces, uh, 1975 LP by Willie Nelson called uh, "Redheaded Stranger," and then we're gonna we're also gonna uh, dive into uh, Jonah Hex, DC Comics Jonah Hex. Oh, um, I, I read an issue. Uh, Travis read an issue, and, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna ball it up and That's see what right. happens. I would also like to point out, in honor of the good and the bad and the ugly in the Western Scoundrel, this whole podcast is ADR'd. Uh, we actually <laughs> recorded the podcast once, and then we went over again and just said the same things over. This time, 
I'm actually Jay, and I am playing Travis's <laughs> role. Uh, and uh, Travis, you are assessing Jay's role in this. Uh, so we're all we're, we we've both put on each other's accents, and we're going to ADR this whole podcast. So if it gets confusing, we're that good. <laughs> we're that good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Western scoundrels. You live in the West, Jay. I do. Yeah. I do. And, and, you know, I see, I don't think I appreciate this enough because, you know, you, you go to a place like Old Town Scottsdale and you see kind of like the, the whole little shtick of the, the Old West architecture. Of Lots some of, the, of horseshoes hanging around Yeah, horseshoes and statues of cowboys and i never random really wagon a... wheels just propped yeah. up against <laughs> yeah, hydrants yeah. or yeah. or used decor. as chandeliers exactly you know, the way. and i never growing up around it all the time i don't think i really appreciate it uh did you i mean you did yo well, you didn't yeah. grow up yeah but in, we came in, i went to arizona every summer growing up and you know, oh, then okay. i spent you know oh a good 15 years in there after college before moving back to japan and yeah it, it it comes off as hokey when you're a kid uh, because of many reasons, because of the stuff that I was interested in as a kid and also the way it's presented in the streets of Scottsdale or in like these makeshift saloon towns. It comes across as very not even kitschy. Touristy. But, yeah. Touristy. Yeah. You know, that's what it always seemed like to me. Yeah. It, it was just like, hey, here's it because there's. It it requires a bare minimum of effort to get something to kind of feel Western. You mm -hmm. know, there's a couple of major tent poles that you need, some boots, some wood paneling, and like some wagon wheels or some horseshoes, and you got yourself a Western theme. <laughs> so a lot of places do it. Not all of them do it very well. Uh, yeah. But it wasn't until I got yeah. older that I started, you know, really appreciating the western as a genre and honestly i think oh, yeah. well, we'll mention it i, I uh probably quite a few times uh especially since we were talking about willie nelson time of the preacher but i think the preacher comic uh by garth ennis and steve Dillon was my entree into really loving westerns other than like you know dances with wolves and some of those big movies and stuff when we were kids but as far as understanding that a western doesn't have to have necessarily cowboys and wrangling and, you know, cults. Those, those are all features, elements of a Western, but the heart of the Western being that, that frontier-like character, that character who sets their own code and goes back into a civilization or goes into a civilization or into an environment that their code is in opposition with. And so mm -hmm. that seems to me one of the major elements of a Western that we're going to be talking about today as far as how the Western scoundrel represents that. Like, why why do we constantly see these type of characters like Clint Eastwood's character uh, in – or actually all the characters in Good, Bad, and the Ugly. The, the character that Willie sets up in, in Red-Headed Stranger and, of course, Jonah Hex, uh, who he is. These, these three things – all have this through line of this type of character. So here's my question to you, Jay. How you, how much ownership over this Western scoundrel frontiersman Western character does the West have 
is this a uniquely American pop culture invention, this type of character, do you think? Or is it pulling heavily from other places? Can we claim this Western scoundrel as our own? You know, I don't know. Because you look at stuff like, um, you know, even like Lone Wolf and Cub or Kurosawa um, stuff. Yeah, there's that element of like the man of few words, right? You know that the tough guy with 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 few words that that does what he says, and you know it, it's like it seems to be a, a, a common thread throughout, even like uh, uh, like Nordic culture. There's there's you know with like Vikings and and even like. Uh, um, gosh, you can even say, I mean, granted, like, you know, stuff like William Wallace and, and things like that is, but I don't know. See, those, I think those stories have been put in a, in a Western package. Right. Oh, so that's it's hard. A, that's, it's hard. That, that's very interesting. Are we telling? Tell. Yeah, we are. Mel Gibson kind of takes the story of William Wallace and puts it into this Western format. Right. Uh, that's really interesting. Wow, yeah, I don't cool. think that question is going to get answered in this podcast. But now <laughs> I am, I am intrigued, uh, and I would it's hard to tell. I would you read know? a. I'm gonna let me put a page number limit on it. A 932 page book on like who owns the 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 West, like that 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 the Western is the Western uh, a uniquely American creation that other cultures post the creation of the western have just adapted to tell their own stories like the shogun like the uh, ronin like the samurai stories or are the essential roots of a western really just something like in greek mythology or roman mythology that's been pulled out and recycled and, and kind of blown up Huh. Yeah, yeah, that that's that would be really interesting research, actually. What do you but... what do you think that the this, these these Western scoundrel characters and these are these gray characters, right? These are these anti heroes. These are these people that you you can't help rooting for, even though you know you shouldn't be rooting for. Uh, these are people, you know what what about that is so appealing in this modern era of, of the last you know 150 years that where it seems like every st- a lot of stories have a character like this in it yeah i you know i don't know because there's something very comforting about like the supermans and the captain americas and the luke skywalker well early luke skywalkers uh where you know where their moral compass lies, mm-hmm. you know, you you know, if they're going to be put in this, they're going to, they're going to try their damnedest to do what's right, no matter what. But, you know, you see, also you see characters like, like Wolverine and Han Solo, where to me, those characters are the most interesting because they're the most interesting to watch because you don't know where they're coming from and you don't quite know what they're going to do. Right. Um, and it seems like a, a lot of people are more taken with that, the scoundrel, 
you know, the, the charming rogue right. uh, character um, because of the mystique, yeah. the mystery, yeah. you know. There is a sense, a lot of these characters don't even get names, you know, like Clint Eastwood's famous for playing like the High Plains Drifter, or in this one, he's just called Blondie, even though I don't think he has blonde hair in this. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I think there's also, like you said, there's that mystery. There's also a sense of redemption. If Superman doesn't have to redeem himself for anything, nor does Captain America really. I mean, now, as these modern characters are, they, they put them in these situations where they have to redeem themselves, like an Iron Man-esque type story. But for so long, the heroes in our stories were these kind of out-of-the-box heroes. And I think when you watch something or you read something or you listen to something where there's a character who has failed and made the wrong decisions and done legitimately bad things, but is in the process of redeeming themselves. Sometimes they actually accomplish that redemption and sometimes they fail, but it's that sense of we're redeeming ourselves, but we're doing so by using our, the tools that we learned when we were bad. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. we're not going to redeem ourselves on your terms because our only skill set is being the bandit, is being the gunslinger, is being the the bad boy of the West. And so that's our skills, our history, our environment has shaped us. So we that's harder to change. But in this quest for redemption, we're only Wolverine can only go about redeeming himself in the only way he knows how. You know, right? Uh, interesting. Right, and that's funny. That that was like one of the themes in the the Jonah Hex book I I read. Um, but yeah, and and also there, there's a lot more depth to that character, um, uh, you know, of the the scoundrel, and I think in a lot of ways we relate more towards someone like that because mm-hmm. very few of us are view this the world in black and white i think everybody looks at a situation and said you know i know this at least once or twice in their lives i know i know this feels wrong i, I it looks wrong but it feels right right you, you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and and who and maybe to you know outside eyes it, it looks bad but in to me this feels right and this is what i want to do this is what i'm going to do you know, and you know, I, I, everyone thinks I should zig when I'm, and I'm going to zag, kind yeah. of thing. You know, yeah, let's, but, let's see. Uh, speaking of zigging and zagging, that's these characters do a lot of this in this movie. Let's see if we can maybe pull some of these kind of ideas out that we just talked about and see where they exist in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Wow! All right, so you, this is this was your first viewing of this movie. I believe it was, it was. And, you know, you were saying that, um, you know, you didn't come to really appreciate, uh, Westerns un- until preacher. I, I didn't appreciate Westerns until, uh, I saw that movie tombstone. Oh, I thought you were going to say that song, old town road. Uh, <laughs> that too. Yeah. That's of course. solidified. It. That solidified you know? it. Tombstone, you called down the thunder. Well, now you got it. We're going to take me down to the old town. Tombstone, great one. Go ahead. Uh, 
Tombstone with uh, you know with Val Kilmer and Kurt Russell and Sam Elliott and Powers Booth and Michael Biehn. Uh, I mean that because you know my my uh, my gra- I was raised by my grandparents and my grandfather loved uh, those Louis L'Amour books. Mm, yeah, same with and mine. and um, they loved John Wayne. And I, you know, I, I watched some of those, you know, like Sons of Katie Elder with, with Dean Martin and mm-hmm. Ricky Nelson, and they're just so cheesy. And I'm like, this is, you know, and so I just kind of had that whole, that was kind of made up my whole uh, perception of the Western until I saw Tombstone, you know, I'm like, what? These guys can actually be badass. They are. All and those so- characters are badass. <laughs> even even the so, villains are badass in that. Oh, like, yeah. Hey, law dog, we don't like your kind. Of, we don't like your kind around here, law dog. Law dog. <laughs> oh man, yeah. It, it's like uh, it, it was like a perfect storm of badassness. Right, right. And yeah. So I've been playing catch up ever since. You know, uh, you know. I saw uh, the. I know it was a remake of a John Wayne movie, but True Grit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the remake of 310 to Yuma with mm-hmm. Russell Crowe. Um, I mean, they're just, all those were really cool. All they're, they're newer, but you know, I haven't really had a chance to go back and, and I know these Clint Eastwood spaghetti Westerns are, are held in high regard and, uh, I've been trying to play catch up and yeah. So this, yeah, this is my first viewing of this. So your first viewing of it, you go in here, what strikes you the most about this movie? The the first thing that hit me was the music. Yeah, that opening track with the animation. Just, just, it's so muted and tinny, but just alive and peaks and valleys. And George, and then they add the soundtracks to it. The 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 hoof beats, the the footprints, the uh, all that stuff. Train sounds to it, and you're just like. Holy cow! What did I just turn on? I am like headfirst into this thing. Yeah, um, and uh, also how kind of like artful some of the cinematography is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of shots of hallways. I got a lot of long uh, shots of 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 these these angles. And I'm like, wow, that's really, that's, you know, beautiful looking, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I wrote down here, that's Tonino uh, Delicoli is the uh, uh, cinematographer on that. And one of the things about this movie that's so famous for it is Sergio Leone's direction and his cinematography. It's either an extreme close-up or a wide shot, you know? So there's not a lot of mid mid shots in this movie. You are either right in their face or you are, it's this far wide shot, like you said, like in a doorway or in a desert vista. And that contrast of either you're like super close or super far is really you, it really does scream cinema to me. You know, Tarantino uses this a yeah. lot, this idea yeah. of like, we're right here and then we're this far away. Uh, and it just, it just works there's something about it especially for a western when you're this close to the guy's eyes when the face is cut off you're seeing every crack every smudge of dirt every you know every whisker on their face 
and then you pull and back. bugs. Yeah. Did you see all the bugs like crawling yeah. on like pillows and stuff? Oh, like, it's what? great. I love a dirty Western face. And there's a lot of <laughs> dirty Western faces in oh, this yeah. movie. Everyone's hot and sweaty and sunburnt. At one point, Clint Eastwood, uh, Blondie, is his face is just is so scarred and dried from the sun that you're like, holy smokes, this is this is intense. Yeah, it's all peeling and nasty but like you said if camera's right there yep you know to take this I, be- to take your beautiful actor and to put him and disfigure him for i don't know like one fifth of the movie is uh it's ballsy yeah you, you know i had that same impression too i'm like wow that he doesn't care you yeah. know and yeah the, the movie is dirty and gritty and and i think that that almost lends to a sort of a a, a yin and the yang f- for the beauty of some of the landscapes and, and some of the shots in this, having it so majestic yet dirty, you know? It, it's... Yeah, I think, you know, and, it's, and just thinking about it now, you almost need a reason for these characters to be there because if the life is so hard as it's portrayed – and it's so deadly. It's like, well, what's keeping in them there? And then you pull back and you see these shots and you're like, oh, who wouldn't want to live here? Who wouldn't want to yeah. struggle to be a part of this beautiful part of the country, which is like, it looks like kind of like a New Mexico area. They're, they're kind of like the Civil War kind of ending, but like the New Mexico kind of conflicts in it. And it's fantastic. But in this movie and i'm gonna ask you this question now because i think uh, i think the answer is obvious jay so if you get this wrong i'm cutting off your mic you'll have a new host next week (laughs) we have we have three scoundrels in this movie we have blondie we have angel eyes and we have tuco of the three whose movie is it that's a really good question uh I was I actually just can't see pond- me, but I'm taking a smug sip here. <laughs> I'm like taking. I was pondering that, and I would have to say Tuco's. Absolutely, this is Tuco's movie, man. Yeah, uh, yeah. You meet Tuco's brother. Yeah, you know, it, it's he gets like- the most amount of dialogue, the most amount of screen time for sure. His he his his arc is he's the the character who actually goes through a character arc of somewhat, you know, um, and played by Eli Wallach, a Jewish guy who, if you've ever seen the movie Misfits in like 1959 is complete. You're like, it took me a while to realize. I'm like, holy shit. That's, that's the guy from Misfits. That's Eli. What? And part of you is like, this is not okay that he's doing this. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing straight up Mexican face in this movie, but he does it so well that I'm like, this movie is an argument for why it should be colorblind casting and the part goes to the best person. Uh, Now, I understand the problems with that, of course, but you see this movie and I'm like two minutes in, I'm like, I got no problem with this. This guy is killing this role. Yeah. Uh, No, I... I just thought it was really strange because, you know, you you see, you hear about this movie and it's like Clint Eastwood in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I'm like, okay, that's odd because Clint Eastwood kind of seems to be, you know, put in the back seat to, to Eli Wallach's character, to Tuco. 
you know, I, I don't know, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's his, it's his vehicle, I believe. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I mean, you get whole scenes, a whole long arc where he is, you know, left Eastwood and he's, you know, trying to buy guns uh, and he's, you know, um, you know, the bathtub and, and, and shooting down people who are trying to assassinate him. Uh, and he gets a lot of screen time by himself just yeah. being this scoundrel type character. And it's interesting because speaking of Western scoundrels, his character almost seems irredeemable. And I don't know if he even redeems himself in a traditional way in this movie. What do you, I, I, I've, you know, because at the end, he, you know, he's changed a little, I don't even know if he's changed. I'd like to say he's changed no. uh, where, but you know, you say no. No, I, I, I think he changed because his motivation, because he's motivated. Yeah. Um, but he's the same damn same Tuco. T- same damn Tuco. You know? That's a great man. You know, he's, 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 uh, you know, he's, he's charmed by the treasure and he's doing whatever he needs to do to get to that. But, you know, I think he's the same kind of crappy individual he was <laughs> right he's the hustler character like he is he's not the best of the three he's not the best gunslinger uh he's the bandit right and <clears throat> but he's smart like he's he's clever about everything he does and he lives this and this is a, i think a, a major factor of a character like tuco in this scoundrel pop culture thing is he lives this devil make hair lifestyle, but underneath it's all very calculated. You know, he's not the, he he seems like the fool, but he plays up the fool. Normally in a movie like this, uh, they make fun of it in three amigos, right? Like Hefe, like, uh, why didn't you, you know, like that character in three amigos is kind of the straight up villain version of Tuco, which is (laughs) this foolish character who can be extremely evil. And Tuco seems to be calculating. And you have that moment with him and his brother that's really important to the character where he shows that he acknowledges that, like, ah, yeah, I was pretty shitty and I shouldn't have helped you out. But, like, I I still love you, you know? Yeah. um, He said something that that was really interesting when he he said to his brother, who, who went off to be a priest, and his brother was just giving him all sorts of, you know, laying all a thick blanket of guilt over Tuco saying, Hey, you know, where were you? And our parents were dying. You know, our father, he asked for you and you were gone doing whatever scoundrel things you do. And he said, Hey, he said, I was with them when, when we were growing up and you went off to be a priest. He said, I did what I had to do. I did what you were too much of a coward to do. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, Wow. So I, you know, right? I, I think right then you kind of get a sense of he's throwing like said, he's throwing that Jewish Tuco, that Jewish guilt at him right back. <laughs> yeah, like, well. <laughs> it's very similar to like the Mexican guilt. Yeah, it's yeah. right there. It's, it's, right it's there. a hard scene to watch because the his Catholic, brother is his, yeah, his brother is a Mexican actor, and so it's hard to watch them two in the scene when one is, <laughs> is painted up to look like this Mexican guy, um, and the other one is just straight up like, oh, you should probably be playing Tuco, dude. <laughs> But like you said, that that to me was the point where I'm like, oh, Tuco's not such a d- 
dumbass after all you know he, he kind of he's got a soul you know but i don't know it almost seems like i mean maybe i'm reading too much into this like maybe you have to mask it right in order to 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 get by in that world you right know, you can't let that side of you exposed very off very much right right yeah it's as opposed to our straight up villainous guy angel eyes who is the just the straight up villain scoundrel of the west which is always a great character and if i could ever i don't have the the look or the chops for it you have to have kind of a certain gravitas and and a look about you but that to me would be one of the most fun characters to play in any pop culture medium is the straight up cowboy villain the man the black hat you know just the guy who just icy stares people down that scene at the beginning of the film where he's sitting down to to dinner with the guy who he's going to shoot at the end of at the end of the meal it reminded me so much of the beginning of um a glorious vast yeah 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 i bet you that was taken right from that that. and it's just because you know what's gonna happen you know what's gonna happen it wasn't as i mean Tarantino definitely took that to a, the next level on that scene by hiding him underneath the floorboards, but just how slow they let that scene play out and how cordial this villain is being. But same time, you're like, this guy is not good. This is not going to end well. And he's just eating nicely and he's eating with his fingers and he's like, well, yeah, are you going to tell me where he is? And it's just, it's a nice house. This is, oh, you know, sits down and then you're like, this guy's going to get dead real quick <laughs> it's it's almost more it's like a it's like a different degree of of evil to sit there and kind of you know be cordial and be kind and generous to the person you know you're going to murder right cold blood you know but you just sit there and you kind of just toy with the prey yeah. You know, you kind of just bat it around a little bit and, you know, and then you strike. <laughs> those are always the most interesting villains to me are those that if you didn't know what you knew as an audience member, then you would think this person is a decent character or a cool yeah. character. But because of the, the storytelling language of these films and, and stories – we know that, like, no, dude, don't trust this dude. Don't, don't sit down. You sit down, you're dead. Oh, you sat down, you fool, <laughs> you fool. It's that snake charmer, right? It's that come into my, look into my eyes, and it's gonna be okay. It's gonna. It, cops use this tactic, right? No, sit down. That's fine. Like this happens all the time. People right. make mistakes, and you're like, uh, 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 uh. You ain't getting me. <laughs> I do that with my student. I do that with my students sometimes. Listen. Do I care that you threw the paper around? No, have a seat. Have a seat. It's fine. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) And I'm like, I called your parents up. That's fine. You have detention. It's cool. And you failed the class. But, I mean, (laughs) yeah. Which takes us us to the good. uh, In a a movie called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, you have to look at the good. And the good isn't traditional good. I mean, we're introduced to Blondie, the Clint Eastwood's character, is he's hustling people like Tuco. He is um he doesn't kill anyone who doesn't deserve it. Um but at the same time he is circumventing the law for his own gain. Yeah, yeah, he he's not a 
he doesn't seem to be he seems a little bit more trustworthy yeah um you know he kind of has like the honor amongst thieves kind of thing yeah going um and yeah he's not as like cold-blooded killing machine as angel eyes or or to go and he shoots off a lot of he shoots off a lot of hats he shoots off a lot of hats uh, on civilians which Which isn't nice at all yeah he takes he takes unnecessary (laughs) he takes unnecessary risk because oh it's oh it's all good you're the cool western scoundrel shooting off people's hats but that bullet goes a half a centimeter lower and you've just killed someone in cold blood and like so i think that's a part of a western scoundrel too is they take things to a limit that could easily easily something goes wrong or at half an inch changes and now you are just as villainous as anyone else yeah that's it's, true it's that walking the line like johnny cash says you know it's like yes. that's what this character is doing he's walking the line it's a super thin line and if clint eastwood doesn't follow the code that he's established if he killed tuco in the end like that then it's like ooh, that's you're leaning towards villain now you know which yeah. he could have easily killed tuco if he had missed that shot tuco there's no way he's gonna get back in time to save tuco it- no, and I was wondering the whole thing. I'm like, you know, it was ending. And it was kind of the, the shot was kind of panning out. And then you see him turn around. I'm like, oh, come on. Because yeah. I was totally fine with him leaving Tuco. Really? He deserved, <laughs> he deserved everything that he got. I he would have been sad out. if Tuco, because I fell in love with Tuco, man, which sounds, <laughs> that sounds like a great, like, 1950s elevator song, like Girl from Ipa Nipa. Uh, like, <laughs> I fell in love with a boy named Tuco. I shot him off a tree, and then we took a trip to Italy, you know, something like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was okay with him leaving. And I was actually really surprised that he came back and, and did that. I'm like, oh, well, whatever. I wouldn't have done that, but whatever. It would have, I, I, I think if they had made this film now, do you think that would have changed the, the, the character of Londi shooting Tuco down? Do you think, uh, this Western shot today, um, would have, like like the guy who's doing I forgot what his name is but he did like Hell and High Water uh he's done a couple of those kind of postmodern westerns um something like a like a true detective or um that type of thing do you think that Clint Eastwood's character would have shot Tuco down <sighs> I shot the Tuco that's hard to say, yeah. Because I, I believe this whole movie wouldn't have been made if it if somebody if somebody uh, turned in the script to you know to a studio nowadays. There's no way they'd be like, "What?" You yeah. know, over the shoulder. And who cares where it lands? Kind mm. of thing. Um, so I, I I do I think it's I think they still probably would have had that. Yeah. Um, had him shoot him down. That makes it less the 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 cinematography, the music, the shots, uh, even some ways the the choice of doing ADR and these spaghetti westerns makes it like artistic and art housey. But that decision to shoot Tuco down makes it very poppy to me. It makes it very main like the mainstream appeal is there. If you weren't going to shoot Tuco down, this is a dark, gritty indie movie. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. 
do you feel the the right people won? Well, I mean, everyone, everyone, the, the, of the, of the three, uh, the, uh, the angel eyes is the one who doesn't, you know, doesn't leave with anything who gets, who gets shot. Um, angel eyes probably worked the hardest, maybe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> angel eyes definitely killed the most people to get to that grave. Um, and the others kind of stumbled across it, right? They're walking through the desert and this kind of falls in their lap. Meanwhile, Angel Eyes is is hunting this thing out and doing the work. Angel Eyes is the Indiana Jones of this movie, if you will. It ah. would be it would be like he sets out on this thing. I gotta do what I gotta do, and it would be like if someone stumbled into an Indiana Jones movie and fell into like the the Lost Ark and just stole it from Indiana Jones. We'd be <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? That's in Indy worked hard for that shit, you know. <laughs> That's true. From from like the first moments, uh, uh, Angel Eyes is on this trail. Yeah, you know, but yeah. I'm, so, would you have rather have had Angel Eyes no. walk away with this? And and here is why: Clint Eastwood as this drifter character, Blondie, is so entrancing and engaging. You cannot take your eyes off this guy this is a beautiful man in this movie like he's got he is just like a man he's a man in a way that i don't care i could live for a thousand years and i will never be and it comes across man yeah man's man yeah and he's so there's so few lines of dialogue his style the way he just kind of drops that shoulder down in in this movie even his ponchos everything and i will say this cigars are definitely a character in this movie Cigars <laughs> are definitely this Clayswood character is doing so much cigar work in this movie. He's putting it in people's mouths. It's like his his like business card. Anytime he comes across someone in this movie, he's chucking a cigar at them or slipping it in their mouth or chomping on it. I'm like, this is cool. It makes me want to go smoke cigars. <laughs> and that's why I want, you know, that's why I'm like, no, the right guy won. Like Clint Eastwood needs that. If Clint Eastwood was shot down in this at the end to let Tuco live and Tuco has a change of heart. I would be like, man, no, it's gotta be Clint Eastwood. Like you just, you made me, he's just, you shot him in a way that this is my hero, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He was shot down by that drunken captain. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's one of the things I, I kind of like. The captain, the captain's dying. Let me stick a cigar in your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Watch, hey, watch this bridge and hall. Here's a cigar. <laughs> um i liked how the 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 film was such a like odyssey of of events you know that they traveled through towns they came across you know they met new people they they there was a little uh another little side plot with the captain the bridge and you know, yeah, it's I a, don't know. It's a road trip story. It's it's it yeah, reminds me yeah, of like the movie Cold Mountain, where they're going through the the Civil War. The story isn't about the Civil War, but the Civil War is the Odyssey. I mean, it all comes from the Odyssey, right? So the Civil War is they had these little things like little islands. Here's a bridge. Here's this, uh, you know, uh, uh, an internment camp, and they're all related to the Civil War in some way. Uh, but they you have to kind of get through every island, aka every little skirmish in the civil war to get to it um, yeah and i love the setup between the two scoundrels where they each have one part of the equation 
Tuco knows the graveyard. Yeah. Blondie knows the name on the grave. And there's that one scene where they're, they're blowing up the bridge and Tuco is so, he's like, oh, you're not going to say it. You're not going to tell me. Okay, I, I will go first. The, the, the graveyard is this one. And he's like, the name <laughs> on the grave. I forgot. What the, it's a very famous name. And that when I heard it, I'm like, oh, I feel like this has been called, again, Tarantino and Kill Bill, the nameless grave, right? You know, at the end, or in Kill Bill, where it's like, oh, we buried her under this, the nameless grave the grave or oh, the grave wow. of so and so and so is very uh uh in there but yeah i had so much fun rewatching this movie and i liked it so much that i immediately watched a, another fistful of dollars right after it which is another one of the um um dollar trilogies so that's fun too and it's got it's got the actor um uh lee van cleef he plays a more good-hearted scoundrel with Clint Eastwood. They team up together in another fistful of dollars. So if you like oh. Angel Eyes and you like that Eastwood dynamic between them, there's a lot more of that in, in another fistful of dollars. Oh, cool. Yeah. Not cool. as good. Not as good, but interesting. You know yeah, what is the rest of those you know what is good though, at least in my opinion, is Willie Nelson's The Redheaded Stranger from Blue Rock, Montana came in the <laughs> town one day. Now I was I put this on the list because it's a story about there, but I was hesitant. I'm like I'm like, well, we're really gonna test Jay's openness to things. If if I'm gonna if I you know because it's like I'm you seem pretty open on, on musical genres, and I'm like uh, Tom Waits is I I think he can get into that, but I'm like this is just straight up like vocal country album, which I absolutely loved. Um, I have i have admired um the soul of real country music um for a, a long time i mean you can even i mean of course there you know it's johnny cash but you know even like like Waylon jennings and, and merle haggard and um Oh gosh. David Allen Poe, Chris Christopherson, yeah. Yeah, Buck Owens. Buck Owens. Um Hank Williams. Hank Williams, of course. Jimmy Rogers, and, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, and and Willie Nelson, I I just his discography is so vast. I haven't even like known where to begin and uh this was great. I yeah. I enjoy, and I was shocked by how I was shocked by a few things about this record, but anyway. No, go uh, for it. Go, we, start, start off with one of the things you're, so you're shocked by. What's one of the things that shocked you about this? One of the things that shocked me is the song length. The songs were super short. I think there was Except only Except like for the last one, which was like five minutes. Like yeah. One three was, minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, some were, were a minute. Uh, a, a minute and change. The time and some were, of the preacher. Yeah. Um, it reminds so, me of that, that, that punk album, like short music for short people <laughs> that came out <laughs> where they were all like 30 second songs. Yeah. It reminds me like a, like, you know, the first couple Ramones records. Yeah. You're like what? So that was, that was really, that took me back a little bit. Cause you know, as opposed to like a lot of the, the bloated, ridiculous country that's out now um that just seems to be a bunch of self-absorbed fluff uh this this is just lean soulful country music yeah 
And yeah. uh, I loved it. I liked well, it a lot. Part of that is Willie Nelson's um, decision to. So this was recorded in 1975. It wasn't. It was like his 16th album or something like this at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Willie Nelson at this point was a, a performer, but Willie Nelson is a songwriter first and foremost. I think he's one of America's greatest songwriters. Um, now, someone like Tom Waits, I might like. Their mu- I might listen to his music more, but I think Willie Nelson in general is just a better songwriter because instead of being as specific as Tom Waits, he's much more just like gets to the heart of what it means to be human with simple language and this kind of haunting refrains. And so at this time, Nashville, of course, is a big place for country music. But if you record in Nashville, Nashville has a lot of say <coughs> in the sound that comes out. And so it was this big controversy. So he says, I'm not going to record this in Nashville. I don't want them to have any control over the sound. He goes to this tiny studio in Texas, records this album um, in five days at this tiny studio in like this little place in Texas. Um, He has a backup band, but he ends up doing a lot of the instrumentals himself because there's not a lot of instruments on this album. You got guitar, you got piano, you've got um, harmonica a little bit, and... um, you know, but there's not a lot. There's not. There's not heavy instrumental at all. It's no. all very light on that. Um, and the thing that I that I thought was so great about this for the Western Scoundrel is the whole album tells a story from beginning to end. And the story, for those of you who haven't listened to this, and I highly recommend you do, even if you're not a fan of country, it's a short album too, so it's not going to take up a lot of your time. Yeah. Is it tells a story of this preacher at the beginning. I mean, it opens up with that and. He finds out his wife, who he loves, is cheating on him. And then he decides to go and kill his wife and the the man who she's cheating with. Then he starts to feel remorse over this and loss of his wife and just loves her. Then he starts traveling and he thinks, as he's coping with this, kills more people uh, because he's dealing with this grief and, and of it. Then goes to Colorado, meets a woman who he falls in love with. Then there's a waltz to let you know, like, hey, things might turn out okay for this guy. You know, it's just, it's this crazy story about this, this guy who goes from God into killing, goes to grief and then finds love again. And wow, it's just this roller coaster of this dark story that is almost like a twisted Western fairy tale uh, that is just so haunting. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, the song, when, when you're mentioning it, when it finds love again, the song, uh, can I sleep in your arms? Mm-hmm. The first time, as I was listening to this, it almost brought me to tears. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, yeah. exaggerating. No. Um, I, that is a powerful tune. Yep. Um, Ooh, I just got chills thinking about it as you were saying that. I was thinking about that. Can I sleep in your oh, arms? Gosh. You're just like, oh my goodness. After, and especially knowing what the character's been through. And then yeah. it adds, if this was just a track on an album of country songs, it's still going to be powerful. And it still might bring you to tears. But when you listen to it in context of the story, knowing that the guy has been portrayed, that he has killed, that he has been this scoundrel... But through love, he's found this redemption. And the only thing keeping him from becoming that guy again is being in this woman's arms. 
Yeah. And you're like, yeah, oh. you know the pain. You know the, his pain. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, some standout tracks on here. I have there's there's so many, and they change every time I listen to them. But one of my favorite songs of all time. And one of the ones that Willie Nelson is, is best known for, I think it's the most romantic and most haunting and most simply beautiful songs ever written is Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. Yeah. That starts off with that, in the twilight glow I see her. It's a, again, it's a very short song. All the songs on this album, the vocals are up front. You can hear, you can yeah. hear every nasally twang in willie nelson because he's not a, he doesn't have a great voice right he doesn't have a every great voice. little treble every yeah. little wobble in his voice like yeah. he can't even get the song out like you're like mm-hmm. to me in the mythology of the song willie nelson sits down with his guitar starts playing the song and only plays it once for his entire life that that's how in my head that's how this song reads it reads like a song that a guy sat down and it came out of him and then it was gone forever that's how haunting this song is that it can only be captured that way once of course he's played it thousands and thousands of times but it's like on the album it's recorded as if it was the first time he's playing with it and it's even hard for him to get out. Like you said, that treble in his voice. Blue eyes yeah. crying. Like at any moment, the song's going to stop because he's going to break down. Right, right. It's so delicate. And, and you know, that was his first number one hit. His first num- billboard number one was Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. Um, and he, like you were saying, he, he recorded this record in 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 a very minimalist fashion. And when he had, so this was also his first record with Columbia records, ah, um, which he had yeah. signed a new contract with. And he handed the the record in and they didn't like it. They thought it was a demo. They're like, yeah. Yeah. And, and he had to fight to get it out the way it was. And I, it's, I can't it, imagine. It's, the it's on everyone's way. it's like on like country music list it's usually like number one or in the top 10 this record mm-hmm. uh on rolling stones list it's usually in the top 200 of all time yeah um, yeah I, that's the list i looked at too and to me which you know that adds to this western scoundrel thing it he really comes across as this minstrel telling this western tale of this scoundrel it it seems to me i picture it every time i listen to this album like I'm walking through the desert and I've stumbled into this guy's camp and he's got a fire and a guitar and you sit down, you share a can of beans and he sings to you this 34 minute tale of this guy. Cause the refrains, they all echo back. Like when he's saying like, and he died with a smile on their faces. And then later in a different song, he's like, and they danced with a smile on their faces. Mm-hmm. And all these themes interweave the music, the chord progressions come in. Even the way the album starts off, it starts off with thring, thrung, 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 thrung. Like it's it's like story time, kids. Like we're gonna decrescendo these albums, and then it starts off like like almost like once upon a time is like it's the time of a preacher when our story began. And one of the in the in the second version of that, one of the things that's so haunting is when he says, "Now the preaching is over, 
right? Um, uh-huh. And the killings began. And that to me is like, whoa, it yeah. just got dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just got real. The, the preaching is over and the killings begun. This guy got hurt, man. He's thrown away God. He's thrown away preaching for the betrayal of this woman. So much so. What did you think about uh, the the song? Oh, what is the song? It's, oh, Time of the, uh, the Redheaded Stranger, which he did not write. Um, he built this whole album around that. It was a um, Arthur Smith, Smith song that he made famous, but it's kind of an old Western standard. Uh, what did you think about that song? That's the one where he goes in the town. He's leading his his dead wife's who he killed's horse behind him. He meets this lovely girl. They kind of smile. They have a moment. She comes outside. She thinks she's you know like oh this we're, we're gonna be something. She touches his dead wife's horse and he shoots her dead. Um, there. Okay, so there was a point um in in that song that you're talking about where um where he said you know and the kill it, it's almost like the switch turned on or or turned off um and it's almost like uh like he was set in motion by he i don't uh, i guess you really can't really explain other than like rage yeah um so yeah i I mean uh it was a little shocking yeah (laughs) but um yeah i mean it 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 fit it was you know it it was it's very western yeah you know it's very like we were talking about like it's very angel eyes kind of the the line that gets me is you can't hang a man for killing a woman Who's trying to steal your horse? Like th- just like like the rules of the society are like, well, I mean, she put it like, I mean, you could take that as if she was trying to steal that horse, and yeah, yeah. And, and in the West, you have the right to shoot someone if they try to steal your horse, and yeah. <laughs> he gets away with it. Yeah, yeah, but what, no, yeah. I mean, there's which there's to, a lot of yeah. this. Go ahead, please. That, I was just say there's a lot of this that that um, goes just very well with with this movie mm-hmm. and with with the the comic we're about to talk more about. so more um, so jonah hex which we're gonna let's get into yeah. right oh, now yeah. i feel like the redheaded stranger in this album has the same mindset the same bitterness and hurt but same there's still a sense of goodness in him that can be brought out by women or other characters around him is jonah hex maybe comic books most well-known Western character, DC character, right? Other than like Two Gun Kid, and then the Western comics, of course, of the forties and fifties. So, what's your experience with Jonah Hex? Well, again, um, I haven't read much Jonah Hex. I mean, the only thing I really uh, knew is that it was set, you know, in the American West and. Uh, Josh Brolin played him in the movie, but other than that, I haven't read any of his uh, any of this. How about you? No, me either. I think I've seen a I picked up a couple of Lucy's when he was in it. I might have though. Though I read the All Star Western, like when DC, one of DC's two thousand, when they 
New 52 when they relaunched and a couple of books. And this was, they relaunched All-Star Western and this is starring Jonah Hex. Um, and I'd seen that Josh Brolin movie, very forgettable. I, I don't even know if I got all the way through it when it came out. Um, but, you know, like I said earlier, I like Preacher and I love the character Saint of Killers in Preacher. And, you know, Jonah Hex is so reminiscent or I guess they're, they're very similar characters. And so I always liked Jonah Hex, um, but I didn't, I hadn't read very many stories with Jonah Hex or certainly no zero arcs, long arcs with Jonah Hex in there. Uh, So this Mm -hmm. was interesting picking this up. I knew enough about the character. I'm like, okay, I get this character. Uh, But, and I had an idea of, he was exactly what I expected him to be in the book that I read, but it was good. Yeah. So tell me about the book you read because we read different ones. Yeah. So the book one, the, the, the Jonah Hex that I read um, just for the, the sake of it was really interesting. It's, it's a single issue. Jonah Hex rides into Gotham, like old school Gotham, right? Um, he's coming out of the frontier and he's been hired by this psychologist to come in and help with an investigation uh, for the serial killer that is, you know, running amok in, in Gotham and killing these prostitutes. And so the narrator of the story is the psychologist. So, and they brought the psychologist in because, like, it's like a criminal minds thing, right? So you have the detectives, and the detectives bring in the psychologist mm-hmm. to, to help get into this, the mind of this serial killer and to figure out who he is and what his motivations are. But the psychoanalyst is analyzing Jonah Hex just as much as he's analyzing the, the, the killer's mind. And so mm. the, it's, a, it's a good intro into Jonah Hex because you really have someone really breaking down psychologically. How can a person you be so violent but also be doing the right thing and trying to help out for good? So by the end of the issue, Jonah Hex loses a prostitute that he was friendly with and um uh but he's hot on the trail he is they have decided that there is this skull and bones society there always is in gotham right there's always a skull and bones society a court of owls if you will <laughs> i don't know what that is about um um and so that's where it leaves off is um this issue establishes this is the mindset of this character we're going after the serial killer and all of Gotham is involved. So it was really done really well. The uh, I'll pull it up and I'll get the artist here in a second. But uh, really moody, really Western, uh, really dark. There is this character obviously is is on this quest for redemption, but he's using these extremely violent means to to find that redemption. He has a code, but that but it doesn't take much for you to overstep your bounds and for you to become his enemy. Hmm. What about you? What was your uh, uh, Jonah Hex story? Um, mine was is Jonah Hex number one. It came out uh, November third, two thousand five, and it was written by uh, J- Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray. Yeah, that was the with- same writers uh, on mine as well yeah yeah because i know you, sh- you sent me that picture and at first i thought we had the same book but <laughs> oh no and fine. art 
art was uh, by Luke Ross. And like you said, it was it was very, very spaghetti westerny, and I I thought, see, I, my perception of this character was I thought he was going to be just like a, uh, like a like a Punisher kind of thing. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, only in the old west. But I was glad to see that he, he had a little more depth. How so? Him. How so? Because it. You could – I was just thinking about that. I'm like, I guess you could just quickly explain away who's Jonah Hex. Oh, he's like a, a Punisher of the Old West. But what, what, what makes him different to you? Well, he – well, I guess Punisher has a code too. But he um, he seemed a little more sensitive to to some of the people around, and he seemed to – uh, okay, so they kind of explained it where, and it was funny. You said almost these exact words. He's a guy that knows nothing but killing, and he's been a killer his whole life. But now he's trying to redeem himself, the only way he knows how, and that's by killing bad guys. Um. And that's exactly what this first issue kind of revolved around, and it's just funny that you pretty much said that exact same thing yeah. earlier. I think that's um, I think that's the the well. Also, we have the same writers, so that's how they view Jonah Hex. It looks like at least from our interpretations of it, uh, and it also fits right into that archetype of what we've been talking about today, uh, mm-hmm. where that's a key ingredient. You have to be on a road to redemption. And there has to be something in your mysterious past. Your, the evils of your past have to be the tools for your redemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are characters in Westerns that go completely good. Like they become a preacher and they refuse to pick up a gun and they end up dying, right? Because they don't right. use the tools in the past. I was rewatching The Quick and the Dead the other day, that kind of pop porn movie from the 90s with uh sharon stone and leonardo dicaprio and russell crowe's character in that right he's a he's a priest always a priest right but he was an old gunslinger and he refuses to fight but eventually he has to use the skills he used for evil to redeem himself uh and that is a key element (laughs) we you know what jay we did come up with a conclusion today you know we started off i'm like i don't know if we'll be able to come up with any answers to this but i think that is going to be our thesis for today if we're looking at like how yep how do we define someone as a western scoundrel you have to do bad you have to have done bad and then you have to use that bad for good yeah that's it right there that's the formula yeah um but yeah so the story goes on uh, where – well, it starts out where um, he he had a partner in a bounty, and the, the partner kind of screwed him over. And, Ooh, very, Tuco, uh, very Tuco-esque. Yeah, and he kills him for it, you know, and the guy is like, hey, you know, come on, Jonah. We've been riding for weeks on this bounty, and, and you're just going to kill me? And I guess, yeah, he, he did something – his partner did something really stupid, so he shot him. And so he did he, did he, he try to touch his dead wife's horse? <laughs> no, <laughs> you can't blame Jonah Hex for shooting the guy. <laughs> no, not quite. But anyway, so then he, he gets hired by this rich family to f- find 
their son. This guy, he was like a like a he kind of reminds me of like a Teddy Roosevelt type character. Mm. He's like a wheelchair and he was like a, a big game hunter. And uh, I guess he was like a badass in his day, but he's now in a wheelchair and, and his son, his little boy uh, is kidnapped and he hires Jonah Hex to go get him. And turns out he was kidnapped by a carnival. And in this carnival, this is the, so messed up dude in this carnival that he the guy takes like runaway or or abducted children and he makes them fight like dogs mm, <laughs> like I'm vicious in, dogs I'm in. you got mad attention. In, in an, and and so that he puts little boys in padding and like like wolverine claws and he puts them in a ring with like a rottweiler wow and and people pay to see this um, and one of, and so, uh, by the time Jonah catches on to this ring and realizes, oh, I bet you that's where this kid is. Um, the kid that he's looking for, uh, is dying of rabies because he got bit by a rabid dog. And so he's like bedridden and he, he's, he's dying. He's, he's not going to make it. And so, um, Jonah Hex basically like uh like puts him out of his misery kind of thing right and uh doles out justice to the carnival owner yeah and you know brings his body back to his father and that's pretty much where it ends there is this common thread here and also with what you just said it remind me of is you know, you don't see someone like Superman or Captain America fight these dark, dark things. Like, you're not going to see that in, like, that hero comic or Indiana Jones or, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker. It's almost like, it's almost that the darker the villain, the darker the hero has to be. So in mine, it's like this serial killer, rapist, uh, prostitute murderer, yours. It's like this guy who pits little boys against dogs. Uh, you know, in um, uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards, like Brad Pitt's character is like he goes dark places to kill these really dark villains. And so it's you almost can't have someone who's that dark as the the villain you described and then have just like Captain America come in there or like a, a cowboy, like a good old Jimmy Rogers cowboy ain't going to fight that villain. Because yeah. it's too right. like because there's there's a chance that in fighting that villain a good a truly good character will be corrupted in a way that they're not able to deal with but a western scoundrel because they have they have embraced a part of that darkness is able to go deeper and further into that cave of darkness that abyss and destroy these really dark monster characters oh yeah i, I totally agree i mean the way he kills his carnival owner so he starves the dogs, right? So that they'll be extra mean. He starves them for like weeks. And then he throws them in the, in the, in the ring with these little children. We call that pulling it. We call that a DMX. Yeah. Yeah. And so the way he, uh, he, he kills the carnival owner is he, he, he throws pig's blood on him and he throws them in that ring and he lets the dogs eat them alive. Jeez. I know, dude. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But um, 
I I think yours is even I, darker than the one I read. <laughs> I, uh, I still in I don't know if it's the dark part of me or something, but I still like being shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, harder and harder to do now with people like Garth Ennis and stuff out there, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this, I was a little shocked by this. I wasn't expecting yeah. this level of darkness. Yeah. Um, and so I was pleasantly surprised. In fact, this was just the book one in the in the, the digital collection I got from Hoopla. And I'm going to finish reading this, yeah. even though the first issue's pretty much ended. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm going to keep going. I kind I want to see what happens with the serial killer too. I want to see. I go if this is some quarter of hours, quarter of hours bullshit. I'm going to be very upset. But if it's not, then I'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so, man. We got wow. Like I feel like I want to go out. Like I wish there was a saloon around here. I want to kick open some saloon doors. With those doors, yeah. I want to. Yeah. I want to. I have never worn spurs. I definitely want to wear spurs. <laughs> here is something that. I don't know. I'm in a crazy place in my life that I might, and I live in this foreign country, so who cares? One of the things I really want to pull off, and I've seen these on online stores, they're, they're kind of coming back into fashion, is those Clint Eastwood Western ponchos, you know, the ones you put over your head, and they look like an, uh, like an, almost like an Indian blanket. I'm like, dude, can I wear that out on a Friday night in Tokyo? Like, for the f- fall is around the corner, Jay, and I feel... Like Perfect. a poncho Clint weather. Eastwood po- I don't need. I don't want it to be like branded. I don't want it to be like really flashy, like a gray one with like some cream trim, you know. And I'm like, can I pull this poncho off? Yeah, I don't know. So. I, I might have yeah, to. Yeah. I might have to get my set my poncho game up. That's really my takeaway from this week's experience, the Western Scoundrel experience. Is like, I want that poncho, and that that uh, that fresh pack of uh, Swisher sweets. Yeah, you oh, know, definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely gonna. I'm a nicotine guy, so definitely gotta up my up my nicotine game by uh, getting some chewable cigars that I can just pop in people's mouths. Yeah, share it as a calling card. Yeah, just like, and he does it so cool too. He's always like, "You did it, you did it perfectly right there on the screen." He just pulls out his mouth, he takes it, in, and he's just like, "Here you go, have a suck on this." And it's like you could tell how much he likes the person, whether he's going to give him the full cigar and let him finish it, or if he's just going to give him a puff or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and they're always so grateful to have it too. Yeah, it's so you disgusting. Know, he, like, he knows yeah. he knows the right time. He's like, you know what, this guy could use some cigar. Yeah, it's so gross and, because sometimes there's blood on their face and they're sweaty and dirty, and he'll give him a puff and then he'll put it back in his mouth. I'm like, that's not sanitary, Clint. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, it's yeah. I I thoroughly enjoyed this this uh, romp through uh, Western scoundrel land. Yeah, and we have it is September now. We have uh, uh, October coming up, so that means we are working on a uh, a spooky uh, esque. Uh, I don't know. Do we solidify that one yet? Do you have that one up? Which one we did? I know it's American. We were looking we're at gonna it. do uh, American Werewolf in London, and Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon. That's what it was, yeah. And we're gonna talk about uh, some Halloween, Halloween themed discussion. Yeah, but, but I think that we have one on, before that on Curse, and we have, and we'll pick one out before that as well. We should have done that before the show started, <laughs> so we're not pulling up documents. But you will know when it comes out, and you will enjoy it because we are the Pop Proletariat. <laughs> you know, I, I'm 
I'm thoroughly convinced you'll enjoy it. Listener will enjoy it because we enjoy crafting them. We enjoy putting them together and, yeah. and fitting in the little pieces of the puzzle. And, and when it fits in, it's like, you know, here, like, here's what we're going to do. If you've listened, if you have listened this far in the podcast and you're like, well, guys, I want to know what to consume. So when the next podcast comes out, I can listen to it. I don't have that answer for you exactly right now, but I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We got a .com. We got a website now where you can go and you can listen to our podcast as soon as they come out. But what we're going to do, and this is my promise to you listeners, is I'm going to have a section where we're going to put the coming up, coming attractions up next. And we're going to tell you before we record what we're going to be consuming so you can consume it along with us. And here's my only thing I ask. Here's my catch. Whatever items we put up there and whatever theme it is, try to consume them all in one week or less. Don't string these out over, you know, two or three weeks. Two weeks, okay, maybe if you're busy. But these are, these are not to be consumed at your leisure throughout a season. <laughs> we want you to put these things together and build an experience. These things piggyback on each other. We want you to live the Western scoundrel life. We want you to live the vinyl life. We want you to live the diner life. We want you to live the cursed life within a week or two. That's my only, that's my only caveat. And if you don't, I'm going to put my poncho on. I'm going to buy some spurs. I'll gun you down the streets. I'll gun you down good. <laughs> Just for touching this horse. That's right. So that has been, we have surfed the pop culture waves of the Western Scoundrel. And there's another big set of waves just around the corner. So go ahead and dry off, and we will see you on that next wave. Banzai!